And so we might say this is an experience of the void. You're listening to the Digital Void Podcast, where we bridge the gap between digital media, technology, culture, and humanism. My name is Josh Chapdelaine, and my co-host is memeticist Dr. Jamie Cohen. Today, we are pleased to welcome data journalist, social entrepreneur, speaker, and founder of The Plug, Sherelle Dorsey. America's not for the faint of heart. But like, if you can find those areas of joy, if you can build things that are going to matter and mean something and create a lasting impact and like true impact, I'm not just saying things that make us feel good, but things that are hard, things that are hard to process and to deal with and the grief in and of itself of, of the challenge and the disparity. I, I think that we just have to continue to build up that endurance and to continue to demand what we're worth. Sherelle will be discussing the importance of discovering historically marginalized histories and how it helps bring people closer together, the importance of finding joy in your work and its centrality to our success, and what we can all do to help support each other in our current moment of crises. How did you arrive at building the plug? Can you discuss the motivations and goals as well as the importance of the project to you? Absolutely. Honestly, um, you know, the plug was somewhat um, just an experiment in trying to identify and dignify the work of, uh, you know, black and brown startups and, um, you know, identities and and conversations happening within the tech space as I was experiencing them as someone who uh, was kind of born and bred in Seattle uh, around the Microsofts and Amazons and then uh, worked in startups and when I looked at the media landscape, it was completely just devoid of discussions and meaningful conversations that included the voices of Black innovators um, in a way that wasn't just about, oh, look what this person did, or kind of a pandering uh, narrative or a rags to riches narrative. Um, and, and I wanted to create a sense of um, matter of factness uh, just about what was being created and to provide almost kind of an art and science as well around the narratives that we're, we're sharing in business and tech news that also involves those who are typically underrepresented, but, but most definitely exist. So, um, so that, that was really kind of the journey um, started it off as a daily tech newsletter, just as a labor of love. It has since evolved, you know, we're subscription-based, you know, digital news insights platform. We're producing reports, we're continuing to grow up as, you know, kind of a new media and insights company. And, you know, it's really just kind of taken off, you know, in the last year as we've continued to create a stream of original content. Um, And I'm a trained data journalist, so it it really is kind of putting this computation and research focus into the reporting work, which is traditionally supposed to be the baseline of of journalism and business and tech and finance journalism. Uh, But when it's come to covering voices that are traditionally marginalized or underrepresented, it seems as though the rigor uh, was not as fluent um, in mainstream media. And so uh, so that's really where, you know, for the plug, like we attempt to, to hang our hat. Um, but that was really kind of how I got started. Have you seen like a, a genuine shift in the way that the de- your background of data journalism plus the plug and plus that type of insight, have you seen a shift in the narrative, the way people are covering the topic now because of that? It's a really great question to ask. We are seeing definitely an explosion of, of tech stories over the last few months, try to pick up and create um, new lenses. And, you know, there's kind of this like diversity in business 
lens, you see the crunch bases, the Wall Street journals, you see those folks start to pick these things up as much more um, part of their, their day-to-day work and not one-off projects, which, uh, which was definitely something a few years ago when I was doing some of my early reporting and contributing to like Fast Company and The Root, I was really attempting to create verticals from. Um, you know, and I'll be honest with you, I, I'm not sure if those things are kind of temporary or if they're going to continue to build and grow. Um, time will kind of only tell. Um, but we do. We definitely kind of see these kind of dips and uh, and rises in coverage. I think, especially when we have major kind of challenges in in the U.S., particularly related to you know racism and police brutality and um, kind of outcry and outpour. And so uh, we you know we see those spikes for a while, and then they taper off, and then another major disaster happens, and then we see the pickup again. So I'm hoping that you know we kind of do more then just follow the trend um, and, and continue to say that this is vital and important to our knowledge, not just as, you know, understanding and, and being part of and, and aggrandizing Black and brown voices, but that America as a collective and the information that we cover and derive is critical to all of our, all of our work. Um, moving forward. I really hope this isn't a trend. I, I hope that this is, isn't, a, isn't considered just a movement and it consistently creates a, a new way of being. So it, I think this, your work actually fits really well into that, that the concepts of like speaking about uh, black owned and brown owned business and people of color who are able to exemplify like not only good entrepreneurship, but a space traditionally marginalized. And I think that's important that we recognize it as hopefully not as something that's just a flash in the pan, but something that lasts quite some time. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, I think, you know, it's really interesting because I think, you know, obviously amid the the climate, it has just everything, you know, from the pandemic to the nature of our work is changing drastically. I think we're all looking for ways to connect and stay connected and feel useful and um, that our work matters. You know, I think we're, we're all learning a lot around, around meaningfulness and really learning how to care for each other. And I will say just in my own journey in this, this last year, I have had to really take a step back and understand my country in, in a new way. And I think one of the greatest challenges has really just been in knowing and understanding that all of us got very different kinds of education. I think depending on where, we, where we've lived, what our family resources looked like, um, you know, but historically the narratives of others has always sort of reigned as the one truth. And as we're uncovering and unlearning about so many things that have been systemic barriers for a significant part of the population to get ahead, I think we're finally listening into that and realize we're stifling innovation when we've consistently, you know, ensured that women can't make the kind of progress or or dollars that they need in order to survive. Um, And we, we, we see that in terms of how policy has disenfranchised black and brown people. We're seeing that with immigration and all of these things are significant. And I think that, you know, it's not to get super political, but it's really to understand the threat of consciousness in our country and how that embeds itself in our work and what our day-to-day labor and our opinions and how those things translate into how we show up and what we deem as important to talk about. All of those things have a history to it. And I think that before, especially in reporting, and I think kind of early, early on in my days in building the plug, I wanted to, I I was moving from a space of 
both creative creativity and curiosity, but if I'm frank, also anger, also anger and feeling like how many other things do we have to be left out of? You know, um, I have a series of books that I've purchased just in the last few months of like the first um, black class of MIT graduates. I have books on, um, on incredible engineers who like sold their companies and, you know, like these are like early days, like IBM and, you know, I'm reading black software and, you know, you're learning about these individuals who've done incredible things, but you, we don't get a history of their work. And so it, it made us think about narrative in such a different kind of way. And I think as a journalist um, and, and just as a human being, right, I, I realized like, okay, Cheryl, you have to kind of go back and understand your curriculum in a new way and also understand the delivery in which you're sharing this curriculum with others, um, you know, to help support people in doing their own work but also presenting the opportunity for them to do their own work. And and I think, honestly, that's what's happening in journalism today. You know, I think a few years ago when I came onto the scene and I was saying, like, listen, there's a trend of underrepresented people who are, for the first time, getting access to, to more pools of money from a venture capital standpoint or creating these innovation hubs and ecosystems or, like, cells within their communities and these conferences and these co-working spaces, like these things seem very minute in the grand scheme of everything, but we're seeing this gathering and this power in a way that we've never seen in history. And that's significant and something we should be following. And I just recall, you know, having conversations with these editors and writers who are like, I think that's interesting, but it's not interesting enough to develop a complete vertical around it. And I remember the investors who were just kind of like, well, I don't know, we were not going to fund you because this doesn't really make sense to us, um, you know, or we like this idea of the subscription model, but, you know, and so, so I just think back, it's like being here today and now people are asking for my opinion and for me to provide my and consultation on how they, and I'm just like, really? Because just two years ago, just two years ago, you were almost laughing me out of the room. And it's like, how many alternative streaming services that are subscription based can get $15 million of venture capital or another round? But one publication that tries to focus on the black innovation economy may or may not work with the same subscription model. That has to be frustrating. Yeah, it's it's very frustrating, I think, too, because what's what I've also had to do as well is is sort of learn how to now that I'm kind of finally getting resources, it is I'm so used to not having them that I now have to operate in a vastly different kind of way. And I'm just like, wow, like imagine if I would have received what I needed at the onset where we might be. But at the same time, I am I'm very much I'm very much grateful that maybe I didn't have the resources because then I had to be hyper creative in terms of how I was um, how I was building. And maybe that made me much more resistant and resilient, you know, like no matter the circumstance. So I, I kind of have to also look at what, what has been the benefit for me as well. Earlier, you mentioned Dr. Charlton McElwain's Black Software. 
And in it, he discusses how the internet, its software, and our digital media environment at large was founded without voices from all communities. In fact, his central thesis in the book asks, will our current or future technological tools ever enable us to outrun white supremacy? After all, this is not just our country's founding principle, it is also the core programming that preceded and animated the birth, development, and first uses of our computational systems. How do you begin to have conversations addressing this foundational and systemic exclusion and racism in order to create more inclusive ecosystems? I think that some of it is just blind and utter hope, honestly, because it doesn't it doesn't make sense. Like when you look at statistics across the board from education to healthcare to housing to general safety, it does not make sense. And I talk about this with my friends all the time. It doesn't make sense for me to live in this country. It just doesn't. It's not fiscally advantageous. It's definitely not racially advantageous when you think about, I have brothers, I have cousins, I have nephews. I think about their safety all the time. I think about my own safety all the time. And I live in a great neighborhood. And I have had great levels of privilege and access because my mom was a homeowner and had a great job. And, and it's like none of those things, you know, from a social mobility perspective means that I will be safe in the country that I was born and raised in for generations. And so on the surface, I think that what I, what I love about Dr. McElwain's book, what I've loved about continuing to learn about Black innovation, even through the context of social justice, is that, you know, the the thread, the thread of, of, of Blackness in this country has been a very painful experience. My grandfather just turned 87 this year. And I think about him leaving Birmingham as a teenager, you know, just due to just general, you know, domestic terrorists that, you know, terrorism of, you know, constantly being in fear for your life because you know that you could be walking to the store and someone could literally hang you and not be prosecuted. And that's the world that he grew up in. And, you know, him going to Detroit and then going, you know, to fight in Korea and, you know, still coming back to a country where he wasn't considered a human being or citizen to even have the right to vote. I think about that. And I think about, I think about just the struggle, the constant here are all the roadblocks, but, and then I also have to start thinking about the joy and I have to think about the beauty and the innovation and the generation after generation, in spite of all the harshness and the brashness and the brutality and the cruelty of America on our communities, we've always found a way to, to create and to build and to to pour love and, and culture and, and, and art into the world. And I have to hold on to that. And I think that why, for me, documenting and reporting on Black innovation, it's part of my coping with all of the other negative kind of feedback loops that come at the hands of racism. And so... You know, I, I, I in Seattle learned how to code and program in high school. And I got an opportunity to work at Microsoft during the summers in high school. And the individuals that mentored me and led me were Black engineers, Indian engineers, 
um, you know, everyone coming from all walks of life, you know, and I mean, just across the board. And so I had a bit of a naivete entering the workforce because I had such a great and multicultural experience. And so, you know, I just didn't accept, you know, that there is only one brand of innovator. And so for me, you know, the, with the plug again, it has been about highlighting and showcasing this other side of a story that has, you know, decidedly not been told um, in, in kind of a mainstream mass kind of way. And so I think that as we, as I continue to build my work and we move kind of to the next levels of, of some of the, some of the work that we're going to be pushing out over the next couple of months, you know, the goal is and always has been like, how do we dignify these trends and these opportunities? Because when I get the emails from my readers and I get emails from people who find us on even like podcasts like this, and they're just like, wow, you know, I'm in this program or I've listened to, you know, I listened to you on, you know, on the Digital Void podcast and, and, and I introduced, you know, your work to my colleagues or to my boss or to my, my, my kids. And, you know, every little droplet of opportunity that we push forward and every narrative for opportunity and hope that we push forward, I believe that it makes us stronger as a people, not just Black people in Black communities. I think that we move toward progress. And even though, <laughs> even though it's so easy to say, like, let's throw in the towel, um, I always feel like I stand on the shoulders of so many people who've come before me and have made it easier for me. And so it is my role and my goal and my responsibility to then help the next generation move forward. And, you know, there's that saying, you leave places better than you found them. It's like, yes, America's America's not for the faint of heart, you know, but like, if you can find those areas of joy, if you can build things that are going to matter and mean something and create a lasting impact and like true impact. I'm not just saying things that make us feel good, but things that are hard, things that are hard to process and to deal with and the grief in and of itself of, of the challenge and the disparity. You know, I, I, I think that we just have to continue to build up that endurance and to continue to demand what we're worth at the end of the day. And that's across the board. Um, so I don't, I don't know if that answers your yeah. question, <laughs> but, but hopefully that. No, it absolutely did. Yeah. But you keep bringing up joy within this. And I think that's really important because to us, it's been very clear that it's not just mainstream media and mainstream coverage that's uh, taking the voices away, but it's also come to the point where the histories themselves act as a perpetuation of the violence of removing those voices. And so that type of resilience that you're presenting with the plug is not just in resistance to the traditional media structures, but it's also like as in to rediscover things that have happened. These aren't these aren't moments of history that were like just sort of there. It's like throughout and beyond and behind every bit of America, like you mentioned, like is has a string of histories that we just haven't heard. And I think it's really important. I'm really looking forward to the work in the next uh, few months because I think it's important too about what that brings, how that enlightens and makes people feel. And if you could expand just a little bit of what it means to think about joy inside of that and, and what that brings. Yeah, I think we all have to have these markers that allow us to keep going. And I'm sure, you know, and for all of us who, you know, attempt to do impact work from whatever medium in which we try to do it, 
sometimes we're not sure, like, is our work meaningful? Um, you know, are, are people really receiving it? What will it mean five or 10 years from now? Um, I think also just in tech, you know, we've, we've been so hyper-focused on creating buttons to make people stay in apps that we have to literally get back to a space where we are creating useful things for the world. I mean, we see that even, even now in, in the, the pandemic where you're like, so many of these things that we thought were game-changing or people were raising a ton of money for that didn't matter in the end when people were being evicted or they were losing their jobs or, you know, you know, again, you know, my situation with having a loved one die, you know, from this, this disease, everything kind of goes back into perspective around, wow, we have to be very clear about our mission and our purpose. And so I, I think that finding that joy comes in, you know, building community. I think right now, obviously we're doing so much from a digital perspective. And so even in like the Black Innovation Alliance or people creating these online events and conversations, I think there was also a virtual uh, event, a virtual kind of movement of pass the mic where white celebrity women pass the mic to Black and Brown women to talk about challenges around race relations and like, what can we do? And so I, I'm seeing these very intentional efforts to say, look, this isn't maybe necessarily an issue I have dealt with or I have really considered, but I'm listening and here's what I'm going to do. And so I think that these kind of markers and these signals that are taking place, we have to be cognizant of what they mean and we have to celebrate them amid all of the other shifts that are happening right now in society. Some of them, you know, very, very debilitating. Um, and so I, I think that, I think that that joy and that perseverance and that grit for some of that, for some of us, that's kind of described our entire lives, right? And for some of us, some yeah. of us for the first time are understanding that other people's experiences are vastly different than our own and how they experience the world is very different. And so it helps us to soften our language. It helps us to say, yeah, let me pick up black software. Let me learn about yeah. somebody else's experience that I may have never ventured to go experience. Like, let me not just allow kind of this vapidness of understanding to be the way in which I view others and the struggles that they share, because I know people feel like, hey, it's exhausting to talk about this stuff all the time. Well, guess what? It's even more exhausting to live, to live it. <laughs> like you can tune in and turn it off. Like I, I have to be conscious and aware all of the time. I even liken this to you know, when I was, before I decided to go full-time into entrepreneurship, you know, my friends and I, um, and most of my friends are entrepreneurs, but, you know, there's always the text thread of, hey, I have an interview. Should I straighten my hair? Even in, you know, 20th century, it's like, should I straighten my hair? Like, okay, maybe I don't, maybe I don't wear braids this time. Like literally having to tuck yourself in in order to adapt and survive. <laughs> Like the, the absolute privilege that some people have of not having to ever think of that ever is not even bordering on even the basic struggles that are in place inside, not just the tech sector, but just working themselves. So I, I, I completely understand. Absolutely. And, and I just think that the consciousness allows us to be better, to think better about policy. It allows us to be much more empathetic. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and like I said, I think I'm still learning. I think I'm, I'm learning a great deal just even about trans rights and lack thereof. And, you know, even in, in my work, um, when we've talked and looked at stories, I've had some of our fellows and our, our journalists also like, well, what's going on with COVID and LGBTQ businesses and communities? Because now we're seeing everyone is losing a sense of community. But what about like folks who truly, truly like have these kind of out, outside outlier spaces where they used to feel safe and now that's completely gone. You could at least find those spaces in a pre-COVID world, but since March, it's been incredibly difficult. And can you discuss maybe some of what you've seen? Two years ago, you wrote for Vice about the rise of Black-owned co-working spaces and how they offer a safe space for innovation in light of the pandemic and a lack of an ability to connect in person. Have you seen any creative strategies and solutions emerge to help uh, bridge that void? Or are you finding that it is much more difficult in general to make any kind of progress? I think that's a great question. I think I worry about, particularly with the Black-owned co-working spaces, their long-term survival. Um, they were already on the periphery of you know, of, of being challenged of for staying open, right? Just, of course, underfunded and, um, you know, trying to, trying to just keep the doors open. And I saw them also develop a skin of resilience around creating virtual coffee sessions and meetups, um, you know, hosting, you know, conversations, be it via IG Live or things like Quarantine Con, and still fostering a sense of community because especially, you know, when you're the entrepreneur's entrepreneur, you know what challenges are ahead, you know? And so I saw the creation of like digital care packages for businesses. You know, what can you be doing to retarget your customers? How do you start to make transitions online um, or to, to an online business if you previously might have been brick or mortar? And so I see definitely this rallying in support around helping, helping people to try to mitigate the storm. Um, and, and I think too, I think that, I think that with everything going on, there's just so much more grace, right? It's, it's hopping into zoom calls where folks are, you know, rocking babies to sleep and, you know, our kids are throwing stuffed animals at your head, which is the fun. Like I've, I've actually had some really funny experiences with folks uh, with managing kids at home and trying to work. And I, I know that they're frustrated, but I'm like, hey, y'all don't apologize. It's totally fine. Like these are unprecedented times. And at the end of the day, like your kids are really cute and funny and I am entertained. So, <laughs> so not, not huge, you know, but I, but I think that, you know, as much as we are kind of gaining from companies being much more cautious. I mean, we've definitely seen an uptick in the plug in our, our work we've, um, in terms of from viewership to subscribership to advertising. We've, we've been noticed and we've been seen probably for the first time since I started this whole thing um, for those who are kind of latecomers. So I think that a lot of Black businesses and Black uh, innovators are being seen in a very substantive way. And, you know, as I said, you know, early on in our conversation, I'm hoping that this continues and it's not just reactionary, but it does become embedded in the way that we do business. Like that's what I'm hopeful for these days. And in closing, what are some actionable tasks that people can be taking right now, including, of course, subscribing to the plug? Yes, well, definitely subscribing at tpinsights.com. <laughs> I think there's also a great way to really look locally at any sort of business support programs that are helping 
um, local businesses uh, stay in business. I think there's ways to, you know, subscribe to various like, you know, Facebook groups or things like that. Maybe there's a chamber of commerce that has an initiative to help with funding uh, with, with local businesses. I think that really starting close to home is significant. There are some great tools and directories on, you know, buying black. I think Cosmo has a great list. Um, there's a couple of other magazines that have really pushed out like, you know, hey, there's all these incredible products that are built by black and brown creators. Here's things if you're going to be, you know, going on your next shopping trip, here's a way for you to engage, you know, su- support the work. And, and I'll say, honestly, one of the biggest things outside of all of that is to continue to learn about other folks and their challenges and what they've gone through. And it doesn't always have to be like, again, sad and depressing and disparity driven, but I would say cultivate your own like reading syllabus for the fall and, you know, gather, you know, gather the book recommendations that have been floating around online all over the place and read some Toni Morrison, you know, read some, some bell hooks, you know, read Dr. McElwain and Ruha Benjamin and Andre Brock. Um, And also, you know, temper that with some great and powerful, beautiful stories about Black life or Latinx life or Asian life or what have you. And, um, and make, and don't, and don't just do it as a one-time thing. Again, it's like, (laughs) continue to have that running book list. I have a crazy Amazon wish list and realizing I, I want to infuse that with just more of the things and the people and places I just don't know. So that for me are, are, I think, the directives that I have in in our closing here. Those are brilliant. And I'm going to take those close to heart as well. (laughs) Thank you, Sherelle. And where can people find you? Yes, absolutely. I'm on Twitter and Instagram, kind of everywhere, taking it a little lighter this, this, these coming weeks as I just process, um, you know, the loss, but um, also, you know, you know, at ShereldDorsey.com, I try to place my work there. Um, you know, it's a great way to, to message me with thoughts and opinions and hell, even book recommendations. <laughs> and so it's a great way to reach me just at ShereldDorsey.com. Thank you for listening to the Digital Void podcast. This podcast is a production of Digital Void Media. You can follow Jamie Cohen on Twitter at New and Digital. Josh on Twitter at Josh Chapdelaine and visit us at digitalvoid.media for more information about our upcoming events and podcasts. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast provider. And we'd love to hear your feedback. Shoot us an email at digivoidmedia at gmail.com. We'll see you next week.